Hello, everyone. I'd like to welcome you all to the latest installment of Hydrocarbon Processing's podcast series, The Main Column. We are continuing our history section today. This time it's on the 1980s, oil spike and collapse, liquid crystals, conducting polymers, and the rise of AR and VR. Now, several major impactful events took place in the global oil and gas petrochemical industries in the 1980s. Nations around the world were hit with another spike in global oil prices, followed by a price collapse. This third crisis in 15 years led many nations to invest in finding alternative fuels and or feedstocks to produce transportation fuels and petrochemical products, including the discovery of a new coal gasification technology for chemicals production. The discovery of liquid crystals in conducting polymers not only created new fields of research, but also advanced the creation of a new host of electronic display devices and led to a Nobel Prize in chemistry. The 1980s also witnessed a greater focus on mitigating vehicle emissions and the continued phase out of lead in transportation fuels. For example, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency enacted a new standard in the mid-1980s to severely limit lead content in gasoline. The standard, enacted in 1986, decreased lead content in gasoline from 1.1 grams per gallon to 0.1 grams per gallon. U.S. refiners also began to increase the use of methyl tertiary butyl ether, or MTBE, in gasoline. So MTBE was used as a replacement for tetraethyl lead as an anti-knocking agent. So in other words, it was an octane enhancer. Now, regions such as Asia and the Middle East experienced sizable increases in refining and petrochemicals production capacity during this decade. For example, the Middle East's refining capacity increased from 3.5 million barrels per day in 1980 to more than 5.6 million barrels per day in 1990. Saudi Arabian petrochemical producer Sabic increased petrochemical production capacity by more than 6 million tons per year to 13 million tons per year by 1990. This also included the launch of several JVs, including Kimya, Yanpit, Petrochema, Sadif, and Sharuk. Now, the creation of Sabic, as well as the construction of Al Jabal and Yanbu industrial cities, and the country's master gas system, would propel Saudi Arabia to be the leading petrochemical producer in the region. If you'd like to read more about this subject, it was featured in the History of the HPI section of the June issue of Hydrocarbon Processing Magazine. Now, when we look at Asia-Pacific, that region's net refining capacity expanded more than 1 million barrels per day to more than 13.6 million barrels per day from 1980 to 1990. So Japan's refining capacity actually declined more than 1.3 million barrels per day within the decade. Now, the region's largest refining capacity increase occurred in China, which added nearly 1.2 million barrels per day in the 1980s. China was followed by India, which added more than 560,000 barrels per day, and Indonesia doubled their domestic refining capacity to nearly 950,000 barrels per day within that same period. Now, the decade also witnessed the creation of three novel heavy oil upgrading technologies, the popularization of new digital technologies that would enhance multiple facets of the oil and gas and petrochemicals industries in the future, and notable industrial accidents and ensuing directives that led to enhanced safety regulations still in use today. Now a spike, an oil glut, and a collapse. In the 1970s, two major oil crises, the oil embargo of 1973 and the oil crisis of 1979, significantly affected importing nations. The oil embargo of 1973 led to a quadrupling of oil prices globally, 
and was an impetus for oil importing nations to intently focus on energy security. The embargo also led to the creation of the International Energy Agency in 1974 as a way for major energy consuming nations to discuss energy policies and strategize pathways for the security of supplies. Now, the oil crisis of 1979, which was caused by the Iranian Revolution and led to a sizable increase in global crude oil prices, had lingering effects into the early 1980s. The year-long revolution was responsible for knocking approximately 4.8 million barrels per day of oil production offline. Although this represented only 7% of the world's oil production at the time, it led to global oil prices nearly doubling to $39 per barrel. Now, this equates to about $140 per barrel in today's currency after adjusting for inflation. As oil prices skyrocketed, oil producers swiftly ramped up production and fought for market share. Led by OPEC-producing countries, global crude oil production reached nearly 64 million barrels per day in 1979 through 1980. However, a global economic recession from 1980 to 1983 led to a steep decline in oil consumption. Many industrialized nations, so in other words, Canada, Japan, uh, West Germany, the UK, and the US, witnessed high inflation rates and unemployment during this period. With oil production having ramped up over the past few years, the world was awash in oil, leading to a global glut that sent oil prices on a freefall. During this time, newly elected U.S. President Ronald Reagan deregulated the U.S. oil and gas industry through executive order by removing price controls on gasoline, propane, and U.S. produced crude oil. Although the policy helped reduce high pump prices and put market forces at the helm of crude oil and products pricing, it did remove several beneficial incentives for smaller U.S. refiners. According to the U.S. Energy Information Administration, this led many small, simple refiners to shut operations. So from 1980 to 1990, operable refineries in the U.S. decreased from nearly 300 to just over 200. Most of these closures were within two years after the decontrol of the U.S. oil and gas industry. This led the country's remaining refineries to expand operations and invest in increasing processing complexity. To mitigate wild fluctuations in crude oil prices, OPEC tried to stabilize the market by implementing production cuts. The OPEC-London Agreement of 1983 was a notable action taken by the cartel to try and prevent crude oil price collapse. The agreement contained two important accords. One, OPEC lowered the benchmark price of its light crude oil by $5 per barrel to $29 per barrel, and two, it agreed to production cuts. This was a historic occasion as it was the first time that the cartel had lowered oil prices. And by 1985, global oil production had declined from nearly 64 million barrels per day in 1980 to less than 57 million barrels per day. However, many OPEC nations disregarded agreed-upon production cuts and began to increase production rates. In the late 1985, tired of trying to stabilize the oil market, Saudi Arabia boosted oil production, flooding the already oversupplied market. And by March 1986, the tremendous spike in crude oil supplies led to prices collapsing to $10 per barrel. Now, when we adjust for inflation, those prices collapsed from nearly $140 per barrel in 1980 to nearly $27.50 per barrel in first quarter of 1986. So within a 15-year time span, the world had experienced three major oil price crises. It would not be for several years afterwards that the global oil market would fall into balance. However, 
it would not be the last oil price collapse or spike the global oil market would see. Several other significant price swings would occur over the next 30 years. Now we're going to switch to a new coal gasification process. So due to the effects of the oil crises in the 1970s, especially the oil embargo of 1973, several nations conducted extensive research on finding alternative energy sources to produce fuels and chemicals besides using crude oil as a feedstock. The stark increase in crude oil prices significantly increased both refiners and petrochemical producers' feedstock costs, and as most petrochemicals produced at the time used oil-derived feedstocks, and that same is true today. In an effort to wean off using high-priced petroleum feedstocks for fuels and chemicals products production, several companies set their sights on coal gasification and coal liquefaction technologies. Since coal is cheap, converting it to a transportation fuel and or using it as a feedstock for petrochemicals production looked to be a viable alternative versus using high-priced crude oil. So coal gasification or liquefaction technologies were not new at the time. Technologies such as the Burgess process and Fisher-Tropes process had been around for decades. Countries with abundant supplies of coal reserves could make use of existing coal gasification and liquefaction technologies to not only produce fuels and petrochemicals at a cost-effective rate, but also strengthen domestic energy security. As global oil prices stabilize, many efforts to switch to other feedstocks fizzled out. Conversely, the Eastman Chemical Company continued research and development on coal-derived chemicals production. Like many chemical companies in the 1970s, Eastman was heavily dependent on crude oil and natural gas to produce petrochemicals. However, the company's petrochemical facility in Northeast Tennessee in the United States was in close proximity to vast coal reserves in the Appalachian region of the eastern United States. In the mid-1970s, Eastman conducted extensive research on utilizing coal to produce chemicals, especially acidic anhydride. Now at the time, the company consumed more than 1 billion pounds per year acidic anhydride to produce various products. Acidic anhydride was first synthesized by French chemist Charles Federac Gerhardt in 1852. It is used to produce acetate fibers, plastics, coatings, and film. Now, the company began pilot operations in 1977, followed by construction and operations on a commercial facility in 1980 and 1983, respectively. Now, according to literature, the facility used several different technologies to produce acidic anhydride from coal. Synthesis gas was produced using the Texaco coal gasification process. The proprietary coal gasification technology would eventually be licensed by Chevron Texaco after the companies merged in 2001. It then fell into the hands of GE Energy after the company purchased Chevron Texaco's gasification business in 2004. Air Products became the current owner of the technology after purchasing the GE gasification business in 2018. According to literature, the coal gasification process used oxygen and coal water slurry as feedstock for a gasifier which used high temperature and pressure to produce two gas streams, shifted gas and raw synthesis gas. The two product gas streams left the gasifier and were purified. Hydrogen sulfide and carbon dioxide were removed via the rectosol process, which is licensed by Lindy and Air Liquide. The hydrogen sulfide was converted to elemental sulfur in a shell clause off-gas treating unit, while the carbon dioxide was recovered and sold to make carbonated beverages. 
The purified raw synthesis gas was cryogenically separated into hydrogen and carbon monoxide, with hydrogen used for methanol production and the carbon monoxide used for acidic anhydride production. Now, the final step used an Eastman proprietary reactive distillation process and catalyst system to produce acidic anhydride. Purified carbon monoxide reacted with methyl acetate to form acidic anhydride. Now, in May 1983, operations began at the Keensport plant, which became the first U.S. facility to use a novel coal gasification process to produce a modern generation of industrial chemicals. Now let's turn our sights to liquid crystals and conducting polymers. For more than 30 years, electronic providers have produced items such as cell phones, personal computers and laptops, and televisions with ever-increasing ultra-clear displays. Now these technologies would not be possible without the advancement of liquid crystal polymers technology. So although first discovered in the late 1800s by Austrian botanist and chemist Frederik Reinitzer, liquid crystals did not find commercial success until nearly 100 years later. In the late 1880s, Reinitzer was experimenting with cholesterol benzoate. While heating the organic chemical, he noticed that it changed from a white solid to a hazy liquid which then turned clear at higher temperatures. So according to the literature, Reinitzer observed that the liquid passed through two different color forms before returning to the original white solid form. Reinitzer concluded that the substance passed through two different melting points, which should not exist. German chemist Wilhelm Heinz observed the same phenomenon while conducting similar experiments on fatty acids in the mid-1850s. Reinitzer sent his findings to German physicist Otto Lehmann. Upon Heating the material, Lehman viewed the reaction under a microscope. As the solid changed into a milky liquid, Lehman observed multiple small crystalline formations with irregular borders. After additional testing and review, Lehman believed this phase was a new state of matter, one between a solid and a liquid. He named the substance liquid crystals and published his findings about floating crystals in the Journal of Physical Chemistry in 1889. This was the first publication on liquid crystals. However, no commercial applications were discovered using liquid crystals. It was not until the late 1940s that extensive research began to be conducted on liquid crystal applications for commercial endeavors. This included works from the following references described in literature. One, English researcher George William Gray, his book, Molecular Structure and the Property of Liquid Crystals, provided a detailed understanding on designing molecules that exhibit the liquid crystalline state. His work would be instrumental in the future adoption of liquid crystal displays, or what is known as LCDs. American chemist Glenn H. Brown. Now, his liquid crystal conference in the mid-1960s gathered the world's most prominent scientists on the subject and was a catalyst for worldwide research efforts on the advancement of liquid crystals technology research. And Richard Williams and George Hillmeyer. Now, their work at RCA Laboratories in the United States in 1962 were the origins of using a liquid crystal-based flat panel display to replace the cathode ray vacuum tube used in televisions. However, to be used effectively, the compound used in the process to create a pneumatic liquid crystal state required too high of a temperature, in other words, higher than 116 degrees Celsius, to make it a practical application for television displays. In 1966, while working within the Hallmeyer Group, 
Scientists Joel Goldmacher and Joseph Castellano were able to create pneumatic liquid crystals at room temperature by altering the compounds used in the process. This enabled RCA to produce the first practical display device. In 1972, George Gray and Ken Harrison worked with the Royal Radar Establishment in Malvern, England to produce stable liquid crystals for small LCDs within electronic products. Additional research in the 1980s led to an extensive use of liquid crystal polymers in display devices. So in other words, LCDs for television, mobile phones, personal computers, and laptops, and other products with the automotive, electronics, and medical sectors. Today, many companies produce liquid crystal polymers. So in other words, a few examples are Celanese, Polyplastic, Solvay, Somato, uh, Chemicals, and Torre Industries. And forecasts show that liquid crystal polymers market is expected to reach $2.5 billion by 2030. Now let's look at conducting polymers. So prior to the 1970s, it was a common belief that plastics could not conduct electricity. However, research by three scientists changed the fundamental thought of the conductivity of polymers. This research would not only lead to the production of many different products for various industries, but also earned these men the Nobel Prize in Chemistry. Conducting polymers are organic polymers that conduct electricity. Research and discovery of partly conductive polymers date back to 1862. So while working at the College of London Hospital, English chemist Henry Lethby obtained a partly conductive material by anodic oxidation of aniline in sulfuric acid. Additional research in the 1970s found that polythiazole, or polymeric sulfur nitrate, was superconductive at low temperatures, while several other conductive organic compounds were superconductive at high temperatures. In the early 1970s, Japanese chemist and engineer Hideki Shirakawa led a group that adapted Ziegler-Natta polymerization to produce well-defined silvery firms of polyacetylene. Just as a side note, if you are interested in the work of Carl Ziegler in Julio Natta, that is detailed in the history of the HPI section of the April issue in Hydrocarbon Processing. Now, during the same time frame, American physicists Alan Heger and New Zealand-born American chemist Alan McDarmid were researching the metallic properties of polythiazole. Now, the two scientists shifted their focus to polyacetylene after McDiarmid met with Shirakawa in Tokyo. In 1976, McDiarmid, Shirakawa, and Heger collaborated on additional research focused on the conductivity of polyacetylene. In 1977, additional experiments showed that doping polyacetylene with iodine increased its conductivity by seven orders of magnitude. Similar results occurred using chlorine and bromine as well. Now, the trio published their findings in the article, Synthesis of Electrically Conducting Organic Polymers, Halogen Derivatives of Polyacetylene, followed by two separate deeper dive articles into the technical research and conclusions of their work. The efforts of the three men were instrumental in creating a new field of plastics electronics research, which gained prominence in the 1980s and led to numerous products and applications. These included anti-static substances for photographic film, shields for computer screens and smart windows that absorb sunlight, light-emitting diodes or LEDs, solar cells, displays in mobile phones and small television screens, batteries, specialty coatings, and many other applications. For their contributions in the field of conducting polymers, 
Bigdaramide, Shirakawa, and Heger were awarded the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in the year 2000. Now let's look at tragedy to a safer industry. Notable industrial accidents occurred in the mid-1970s through the 1980s that led to stark changes in the way industry views safety. These included the Bhopal and Saviso disasters and the Phillips 66 Houston Chemical Complex explosion. In July 1976, a chemical leak at a small chemical plant north of Milan, Italy, exposed the surrounding region to high levels of 2378-tetrachloribenzo-p-dioxin. The leak severely affected humans, wildlife, and the environment. It was later determined that the plant had very rudimentary safety systems. It had not considered environmental protection during construction and operation and had no warning system or health protection protocols for the surrounding communities. The Saviso disaster led to the adoption of the Saviso Directive in 1983. The Directive, or 82-501-EC, aims to control major accident hazards involving dangerous substances, especially chemicals, and contributes to the technological disaster risk reduction effort. The directive was superseded by Saviso II in 1996, also referred to as Control of Major Accidents Hazards, or COMA, and Saviso III in 2012. These amendments were the results of other industrial accidents that severely affected surrounding populations and the environment. The major takeaways from the Saviso directives were the obligations placed on plant operators, which included mandatory safety reports, the establishment of a detailed safety management system and emergency action plans, and the development of major accident prevention policy, among others. Today, the Saviso Directive applies to more than 12,000 industrial establishments in the EU and is widely considered a benchmark for industrial accident policy from nations around the world. So two other major industrial accidents in the 1980s changed the way the industry views process safety management, and those are the Bhopal disaster and the Phillips 66 chemical plant explosion. So the Bhopal disaster occurred in the late evening and early morning of December 2nd through 3rd, 1984, in Bhopal, India. Shortly after midnight on December 3rd, up to 40 tons of toxic methyl isonate leaked from the plant's storage tank and drifted downwind into the surrounding community. The highly toxic material claimed the lives of thousands of people and resulted in more than 550,000 injuries. The Bhopal tragedy led to new safety and environmental measures and government regulations in India. This included the Environmental Protection Act of 1986, which created the Ministry of Environment and Forests. The ministry was responsible for enforcing environmental laws and policies. It also led to the Factories Act of 1987, the Hazardous Waste Management and Handling Rules, and the Manufacture, Storage, and Import of Hazardous Chemical Rules. Both of those were enacted in 1989, and there were other rules and regulations enacted as well. The Bhopal disaster also influenced the Saviso II Amendment in Europe and raised awareness that governing bodies around the world that enhance safety management systems were needed within industry. In the mid to late 1980s, Several governmental safety organizations proceeded with advancing new safety management system regulations. For example, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA, in the United States developed the Process Safety Management System Regulation in the late 1980s. The regulation, still in use today, focuses on the handling, manufacturing, storage, and on-site movement of highly hazardous chemicals. However, 
New regulations and process safety management in the United States were still a work in progress when an explosion happened at the Phillips 66 high-density polyethylene plant in Houston, Texas. Now, the series of explosions, which caused which were caused by a release of flammable process gas that had contacted an ignition source on October 23, 1989, claimed the lives of nearly two dozen and resulted in hundreds of injuries. The tragedy increased the focus on better process safety systems in dangerous work environments, especially in the refining and petrochemical industries. Now, according to literature, several insights prevailed in the aftermath of the incident, including a better adherence to safe work practices and a better overall process safety and risk management program, the creation and adoption of new standards and regulation, the detrimental effects that can occur when safeguards are removed or disabled, and the need for operational discipline in plant operations. Unfortunately, the three industrial accidents mentioned here were not the last to occur within the process industries. However, these major industrial tragedies led to an increased focus on process safety management at both refineries and chemical plants. They have left a lasting impression and have been responsible for new directives, standards, and safety guidelines throughout the processing industries in an effort to keep plant personnel and the surrounding communities safe. So now let's turn to new technologies for heavy oil upgrading. In 1984, the Association of the Valorization of Heavy Oils, or ASHVAL, was assembled in France. The ASHVAL analytical group was comprised of the Institut Francois de Petrole, or the French Institute of Petroleum, or IFP, which would later take the name IFP Energies Nouvelles, there was also Elf Aquitaine, which is a French petroleum and natural resources group that was acquired by Total Fina in 2000 and is now, of course, Total Energies, and Total, which is, of course, Total Energies. The group's primary function was to research and develop new heavy oil upgrading technologies. According to literature, the group's main objectives included developing straightforward methods for the conversion of heavy products and a better knowledge of the structure of heavy products. Now, Ashfall's research and findings led to the development of three major heavy oil processing technologies. Those included Hyval, Solval, and Turval. The Hyval technology is a fixed bed residue desulfurization process that enables refiners to produce ultra-low sulfur fuel oil and low sulfur diesel. That process is now licensed by Axens. The Solval technology is a solvent deasphalting process that removes asphaltines most metals and other impurities contained in atmospheric or vacuum residues. Turval is a residue and heavy oil conversion process by using thermal cracking. Now these heavy oil processing technologies are still in use today. Now our last section is going to focus on the rise of virtual and augmented reality, which is a precursor to the digital transformation. The 1980s not only witnessed the beginning of the rise in video gaming systems, so in other words, Atari and Nintendo rose to prominence within the decade, which is a market that would reach nearly $200 billion in 2021, but also in the popularization of virtual reality, or what is known as VR. Now, one of the earliest VR systems was the Sensorama, created by Morton Helig in the mid-1950s. This theater included a stereoscopic color display, fans, odor emitters, a stereo sound system, and a motion chair. The mechanical device would use sights and sounds to stimulate reality for the viewer. Helig followed up his Sensorama invention with the Telesphere mask in the 1960. 
Now, this mask was the first iteration of a head-mounted display, or HMD device, for VR and is a rudimentary version of the head-mounted displays available in consumer and industrial markets today. And in 1969, Myron Kruger created a computer-generated environments that responded to the user. This system eventually progressed, leading to the creation of Video Place. Now, according to literature, this virtual world could analyze and process the user's actions in the real world and translate them into interactions with the system's virtual objects. Kruger eventually termed this type of system artificial reality. Both VR and artificial reality, also known as augmented reality, or AR, research and development has increased exponentially over the next several decades. For example, Many advances in VR and AR technologies happened in the 1980s. These included the creation of Sayer gloves that used optical sensors to detect finger movements, the creation of VPL research by Jaron Lanier and Thomas Zimmerman. The company was the first to sell head-mounted displays and gloves to consumers, and Lanier was the first to coin the term virtual reality. There was also advanced flight simulators for pilots and VR to train NASA astronauts among many others. Today, AR and VR are advancing technologies within the oil and gas and petrochemical sectors, primarily due to the industry's digital transformation. HPI professionals utilize AR and VR technologies for training, maintenance, planning, safety, engineering, and design. The advancements in AR VR systems are enabling the HPI to digitally enhance operations and safety throughout all sectors of the oil and gas and petrochemical industries. The adoption of these technologies is forecast to increase the AR-VR market in the oil and gas industry to nearly $1 billion by 2027. Again, we want to thank you for listening to the latest installment of Hydrocarbon Processing's podcast series, The Main Column.